step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height in the hat, put it all in the hat. Avram Rosenzweig began public speaking when he was five years old. Over the last five decades, Avram has mastered the art of public speaking. Today, Avram is a professional speechwriter and speech coach. He offers a wide selection of services that can assist you in preparing for public speaking events, speeches for family or professional occasions, a keynote, a memorial, or a simple toast. Avram can also coach you through articulation and presentation challenges. For all your speech writing needs, send Avram an email at info at hatradio.ca. That's info at hatradio.ca. Hi, and welcome to Hat Radio. My name is Avram Rosenzweig, and this is episode 22, and I am sitting directly across from my dear friend, uh, Nate Leipziger. How are you, Nate? Very well. Thank you. It is so nice to see you. Thank you. It's a good time. Good to be here, in spite of the weather that is not so nice. No, it's not so nice out there. It's a little bit gloomy. Right. But and the rainy. Be- the beauty of gloom is that when the sun comes, it's even better, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, listen, you just came from a, uh, a card game, right? Yes. Yeah, you were playing bridge. Yes. So so are you are you good at bridge? Oh, I'm, I would say I'm fair. I'm not uh, an, an expert in it, but I'm playing and I'm enjoying it. it. Apparently, it's a wonderful game. It is a very good game. It keeps your mind occupied and it keeps your mind sharp. Uh-huh. And so, would, did you win today? <laughs> you did, did you? <laughs> I should have won more, but I won. Okay. Yeah. I should have been by many more points. But, uh, you know, one of the things is that in bridge you do make a mistake. And uh, if you make a mistake, you uh, you lose uh, that game. But uh, overall, I won. Okay. I uh, I understand, though, that you don't, pay for, you don't play for cash. No. Yeah. You, maybe you should play for cash. No. No. That would spoil the game. Would it spoil it? Uh, uh, okay, okay. So you play for the absolute joy of it. All right. So I want to tell our listeners that the reason why I am excited about you having uh, 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 having you as a guest on Hat Radio, you and I have known each other for a number of years. We've been involved in a few things together. You were honored by Via Hafta for our Remembrance Award a few years ago, and I've always had tremendous respect for you and what you've accomplished in your life, in particular having to do with Holocaust education. You you really are quite a man. I mean, you you're now how how old are you now? Ninety one. Ninety one. Do you feel ninety one? No. How old do you feel inside? How about seventy five? Do you? <laughs> do you ever feel like a kid? Yes, all the time. Yeah? I've always felt like a kid all my life. Yeah, I'm like that too. <laughs> well, you have that gleam in your eye, you know? Right. Yeah, you seem as though you want to go out and play. <laughs> Maybe we should throw a ball around <laughs> afterwards. When you were walking down the hall to my apartment, 
I said to you, uh, you walk like a young man. I liked your response. Your response was, why shouldn't I? <laughs> that was a very good answer. But I want to start off the show. We're going to cover all kinds of information throughout the show. But I want to start off the show with a quote that I got today from our dear friend, Ellie Rubenstein, who is the director of March of the Living. And I have to tell you something, and I know you know this already. He absolutely adores you. Thank you. He absolutely adores I adore you. him. He's a uh, wonderful guy. He's a special guy, isn't he? Yeah, you, the two of you are wonderful. Yeah, thank you, Nate. Thank you. I interviewed <laughs> I know, Ellie. I here. know you have common uh, background. Yes, so I, I know. I know about you guys, and uh, I respect you and I love you guys. Thank, thank you, Nate. So here's what he said. So I, I told him that I was interviewing you, and I said, Ellie, Ellie, say something about Nate because it's always the guy down the street who comments that we really listen listen to. He's not here today, so we have the benefit of his words from this morning. He said about you. He says, Nate is one of the most courageous, elegant, and generous men that I've ever met, not only for the Jewish people, but for all of humanity. He has such an open-minded approach, a broad way of looking at the world, especially uh, as a Holocaust survivor. You would not blame him for being bitter and angry and resentful, but you don't sense that from him. I've never seen him angry at what happened to him as a child. I've seen him sad and stressed, but not angry. It's pretty profound how he responded to his trauma. What's your take on what he said? That's pretty accurate. I, I think that uh, I'm trying to uh, be fair-mounted. My greatest desire is to be truthful, to be just, and to understand how the other man feels. I have been the other for many years, almost my entire life, even in Canada. So I know how it feels to be excluded, persecuted, looked at as a non-human being. And I've gone through all those processes. And now in my later years, I find that I must be very careful because words do hurt and I have to be very careful not to hurt anybody and to be very, very honest. And I think most of the people who have read my book were impressed with the fact that I'm very honest yes. about my past, yes, you are, about my family and about everything that happened to me. I felt that Writing the book required me to do either one thing or the other. Either write it, and if I'm going to write it, it had to be truthful, and it had to go into areas which many people do not want to go. And so I went into the history of my family, which was not always harmonious. I went into my own personal life, which I was not always uh, the uh, admired uh, person that I would want to be or that I was the best or the handsomest or the smartest. And so I, I had to confront all of these things. I had, uh, as a young child, I had a uh, learning disability, which I had to overcome if I wanted to be educated. And, and I think I did. They're still with me, and uh, I'm dealing with them from day to day, and that's me. 
What, what kind of learning disability do you have? I have one as well. No, I really do. <laughs> we hide them well, right? Yeah, well, we do. We compensate for them. But That's when I right. was growing up, I couldn't hear my teachers. I really I couldn't hear them. I got really confused. Okay. Well, I have difficulty reading uh, sight, sight reading. Right. Uh, my the, I have a delay between what I see and what my mind perceives. Okay, okay. So that is a, a difficult problem, and so it's no it doesn't doesn't matter what language I read it in, I have to sound out the word because it does not register right away. That I mean, it's really important to state that despite the fact that you or I uh, may have or had a learning disability, I mean, you did very well in life. You were an engineer. Yes. I mean, we always think of engineers as being really smart guys. So you got to be a smart guy. <laughs> Would you say you're a smart guy? That's for other people to decide. Yeah, okay, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair enough. Now, you, you were born in, I have two dates. Uh, I have a 1928 in Choshev, and I have a November 30th, 1927. Which date is right? Both of them right. <laughs> you were born twice, were you? <laughs> I was born twice, exactly. Beautiful, I like that. Well, depending on what story I'm telling. If okay. I'm telling my story about Canada, I'm born in 1930. If I'm talking about my my life in Europe. I was born in 1928. Sometime along the way, I mean, I had many ages throughout my Holocaust experiences. I was born in 26. I was born in 28. I was born in 30. And all of these ages had to do with the situation in which I found myself. When I left, the, before I came to Canada, and when I, when I got my new documents to... Uh, after the war, my father and I, we agreed that I should make myself two years younger mm-hmm. for a number of reasons. Two, one, one, that I lost a lot of education. Two is that I looked like 12, even so I was 15 or 17. And three, it would allow me to get an education which otherwise I may not be able to if I was two years older. Oh, so, okay. Uh, coming to Canada, all my documents say I'm born in 1930. All my medical records is I'm born in 30. But when I start talking about my experience in a concentration camp and in Auschwitz in particular, it makes a huge difference if you say that I was 13 when I went into Auschwitz yes. or if I was 15. And I felt I, it goes with my desire to be exact and to be truthful, I could not say that. So I had to, at the risk of everything that is involved by having two birth dates, I decided that I'm going to, for Holocaust education and the world to know I was born in 1928 and I was 15 when I was incarcerated in Auschwitz. And do you celebrate your birthday on November 30th? <laughs> no, November. Where did you get that date? That February. Is, February. Uh, okay, I'll have to look up the source, but it distinctly say it might be on the Israeli Foundation website. I'll have to look up the source. On February the 28th, I, both dates, either 28 or 30. Mm-hmm. So that's the only difference. And I'm, for many, up to the age of 70, I, uh, I celebrated my birthday. I was born as 1930. But after that, I decided to celebrate it as the, my true birthday, born 1928. So just a year ago, I 
uh, celebrated my 90th birthday, and yeah. today I'm 91, Muzzle according tough. to my chronological, not my documented age. Muzzle tough. Did you think you would live this long? No. No. It's, um, you know, I stood in front of the gates of Auschwitz at the age of 15. I had no future. Yeah. I did not think that I'm going to be talking to Avram Rosenzweig in Canada in 1919, 2019. So this is a realization that something that uh, happened that I'm fortunate that I have attained this age, mainly due to medical science. And, uh, you know, I'm healthy. I'm doing well. I don't have any illnesses or problems have you ever yes of course uh, yeah. but uh, as i said medical uh, intervention has helped me to get over it and that's it till here i am you were certain 91 you were in the camps you were certain you were going to die i never assumed that i never assumed that i never assumed till the very end at one moment i had uh, uh, a difficult moment when I said to my father, you go ahead and I will stay here. If they're going to shoot me, I'm going to be better off if they shoot me here. That was when you were being liberated. When I was just days before I was liberated. And uh, that was the only time where my father got mad at me and he says, you're not going to give up now. And he was right. I uh, was not to give up then. And uh, through, you know, uh, the fortunate behavior of a Nazi who allowed us to stay in the camp together when the depo last deportation left the concentration camp in the Bavarian forest called Waldlager number five, I survived. And uh, two days or a week after we were, the last transport left, we were liberated and uh, War was over on May the 8th. May the 10th, I became sick with typhus fever, and I almost died of that. You know you know what blows me away about the story, the story that you're telling, is that you approached the commandant of the camp. Yes. And what I was thinking when I read that story was, how did you have the balls to do that? I mean, you were well, 17 years old. Well, I looked at them as human beings. I looked at them as human beings that went wrong. But I still believe that they can be touched, that they can still be, that their humanity can still be touched. And I was right. And uh, you see, that was the, that's the tragedy, that if I thought that they were uh, deranged beyond the, the capacity of uh, clear thinking or having any emotions, I would say that would be more easier to deal with the Holocaust than it is when you look at them and you say, they were human beings, yeah. they were educated human beings, they were doctors, lawyers, uh, various uh, professionals, architects, engineers, uh, scientists, philosophers, and they did it. They did it in spite of it. So they had to abdicate part of their brain to be controlled by the dictator Adolf Hitler. And they were so convinced that even after the war, 
they said they would do it again. Yeah. Even if they knew what they did and the crime was so horrendous, they said, I would do it again. So that's why it's a, I talk about the Holocaust because it's not an abridgment, it's not an aberration. Right. It is a human story. It's a story of the human mind and the human development and the human psyche. So even so, the Jews suffered, but they were suffered because of some quirk in the human in human nature that we must continue to learn about and we must be aware that we are capable of doing horrendous, terrible things. Do I have that in me? I have no idea. The, oh, so you wouldn't argue everybody does? I have no idea. Some people will succumb and some people will not. There are many good people who did not have the courage, Yeah. who are afraid as they are today. I mean, we have a lot of people who speak out against uh, atrocities that are happening uh, around the world. And they are, when you talk to them, they understand that what's happening is wrong. And I asked them, would you speak up? He says, no, my day, my life would be in danger if I did, because I know that I would be a dead man. I mean, you know, uh, Arafat, and when uh, Barack, Barack, Ehud the Barak. Prime Minister, Ehud Barak, offered him a country, a state. Yes. In, uh, was it 2002, I think? Something like that, yeah. 2002, and Arafat said, I would be a dead man if I accepted your proposal. So there he was. He committed an offense. He committed a terrible act against his own people only because he was afraid for his life. So people do strange things when they're afraid and the dictatorship is based always on fear. Dictators cannot succeed unless they deal their currency is fear. So whether, and this is why we have today in our world, we have to watch out as to who may have the tendency to become a dictator, to write off the human rights of others, others yes. to become dictatorial. And I think the world is very much aware of that. Unfortunately, a lot of states are becoming populist type of governments, which in some way they abandon their own philosophies and they go with the mob. And wherever there is a mob rule, it is very, very dangerous. Would you have been a righteous Gentile? Oh, I don't know. I cannot tell that. I could detect people who would be, yeah. but I myself cannot say whether I would be or not. A righteous Gentile, somebody who saves the life of a Jew or a Jewish family. You've At met the righteous risk of their own At life. The risk of their. You've met righteous Gentiles. Yes, many. Do you, and do you see something in them that's particular, that's special? Every person that is a human right, that is a, a righteous Gentile or righteous among the nation, is different. Circumstances are maybe the dictating factor in whether you become a, a upstander or a bystander. 
but in many cases, it is a very uh, selfless act that you're confronting human beings who you know are going to be destroyed or killed if you don't take them in. Yes. And that moment, it only takes a second for them to make the decision. Yes. Sometimes we're not even conscious. If they examine exactly what they were doing, maybe they wouldn't do it because the risk was so horrendous. So you see, when I see people are talking about the people, you know, the people that did horrendous things are the people who were the bystanders in in all countries of the world where people were hidden and they went to the authorities and they pointed out that this and this person was hiding a Jew. Right. He was not only committing a crime against the Jew, he was committing a crime against his neighbor because he knew the consequences that will happen to his neighbor. In Poland, it was death. In other countries, it was incarceration. So the person who was pointing out where the Jews were hiding were not only against the Jews, but they were against the neighbors. And sometimes you have to ask yourself, which was more prevailing, which prevailed more, the hatred of the Jew or the hatred of his neighbor? Yeah, interesting something question. something for you to think. Interesting question. Your father was Jacob. Your mother was Leah. Yes. Your sister was Blima. Yes. You said about your father that he had uh, your that Blima was sort of the apple of his eye. Absolutely. That you could never do enough to satisfy him. Sometimes, very often, the story of a father and son. But why do you think it was that way? Why do you think you could never do enough for your dad? Because I wasn't uh, very bright. I wasn't. I was. Um, I, I was mischievous. I needed a lot of. Uh, you know, if you if you have a smart sister and your position in your family is that of uh, being the sheep, the black sheep. Yes. So you can't compete with her. So you go the opposite way, right? <laughs> yeah. So and um, I, for my because I had a learning disability, I did not like school. I like mathematics and uh, algebra and all that stuff because that does not require. Uh, sight reading mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, you deal with figures are you know very true and um, but he and I couldn't I, I you know I failed grade one and I, and I had to have a tutor in grade one I mean how many people failed grade one <laughs> not too many <laughs> so now you know uh, my background and uh, I would try to do things that were different and of course I was gotten into trouble. So you said he if had you, to it, be. He had to. He had to send me. You know, he had to send me straight, and he did not. Uh, he did not spare the rod. Right, right. You said if it could be taken apart, you would take it apart. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> right. What What was Blima like? Your sister? Oh, she was brilliant. She was a brilliant, brilliant woman. And unfortunately, her namesake, Rhonda Blima, died. January the 28th of this year. That was your daughter. That's my daughter. I'm so sorry. And that was the greatest uh, tragedy in my life since I became liberated. Yes. I mean, it was tragic that my father died, but 
he died at the age of 70 and she died at the age of 59 and um, huge difference and um, the most difficult part was that for a, a father to bury a child is the worst thing but I also understood for the first time the trauma that my father went through when he lost his wife and my sister, his daughter. I never recognized that uh, pain that I suffered it myself. Yes. Yes, so uh, are you, where do we go from here? You know, we have to go forward. Life is for the living. We cannot help those who are gone, but we can help those who remain. And we must be wonderful to those who remain. And our love for them, for all my family who remained, is very secure and very big and very great. And it is reciprocated. And I truly love my family. And I think they love me. Judging by the actions that they take, for example, my daughter and my son-in-law went on the March of the Living the 19th time. My son-in-law went because he wanted to be behind me, to watch over me. Carrie, we're talking about Carrie. No, no, that was uh, Tsvi, Tsvi. Arla's. Arla was the, uh, she was the, the leader of the adults, a group that we went on, and her husband Tsvi came to be with me and to look after me. That was pretty dedicated. Was it helpful? Action, right? Was it helpful that he was there? Well, it was reassuring to uh, to have somebody that uh, is with you all the time. Yes, yes. yes. And um, uh, yeah, as, as I said, you know, I'm I'm prone to do crazy things at the at the, at the <laughs> spur of the moment. Yes, yeah, still, you know, still, so, yeah, yeah. Good course. for you. Good for you. So, Nate, will you see? Blima again? Will you see your daughter Rhonda again? Yes, I will see her because her name is now part of my great-granddaughter who just was born uh, four weeks ago. Mazel tov. Thank you. And her name is uh, Callie Rhonda. Yes. In Hebrew, her name is uh, uh, Rudol Malka after my mother-in-law. Do you believe in God? What has that got to do with anything? That is really a private matter. And I don't talk about it one way or the other. Okay. It's uh, my beliefs are, are my own. I mean, people challenge me as what do I believe? I will tell them, but there would have to be a particular aspect of the, I don't subscribe in all the attributes of God that people generally propose. And one of the attributes that I do not propose is that he is omnipotent. Yes. That he is all seeing, all doing, that he can intervene in human events or in events in nature. I do not feel that 
God is responsible for the lives of a hundred thousand people who are killed by a tsunami yes. or an earthquake. I'm not. Uh, I do not feel that God intervened would intervene on behalf of the Jewish people. Even so, six millions of us died because then Hitler would be an instrument of God. You think about that. Yeah. And I would not give him that privilege. You to, um, you were in the camp, and it was Yom Kippur. Yes. And you heard noises outside. You were a young man. And because you were a young man, you were able to jump up on the beds and look out of the slat that was freed from the wall. And you saw an image which you said you had wished you had never seen. It was rows and rows and lines and lines of women who were walking naked. And they were walking naked to their death. And they knew that they were. And they were shrieking. And they were shouting and yelling. And you found out later on that two of those women uh, were your sister and your mother. Yes. So How accurate it is, I cannot tell you. I cannot. I can only surmise from what they told me that they were there before the uh, selection in 1943 and they were not there after so we have to surmise that they were selected out yes and uh, they were transported on trucks and uh, it was Yom Kippur uh, they closed the barracks and uh, you know you talk about believing in God I mean people prayed in the camp for God, to God. Yeah. And uh, if you think that it is, you know, uh, you do not abandon. I mean, Elie Wiesel said that one of the things that he cannot forget, forgive the Nazis is that they killed his God, his word. And um, they didn't kill my God because I never thought that God would be doing what's happening. I think I always thought that is in the hands of man, and that's why I appealed to man to save my life, because I knew it was not a matter of predestined. It was not. I was not just a predestined number to uh, be dealt with, um, and I believe that still. So I do pray. I believe in God, but I don't believe in all the attributes that maybe right. most religions have. And so they say, well, why pray if you know that uh, there will not be an intervention? Well, I don't always pray for intervention. Yeah. Most of the time I pray is for Thanksgiving. For Thanksgiving that I'm fortunate enough to be alive, fortunate to have a wonderful family, fortunate to be in, in, the, in the condition of my life that I am. There are many, many things that we have to be thankful for. I mean, there are occasions that, you know, you have very traumatic experiences where you wish things were different. So I pray mainly for the courage that I should have to confront the things that I can't change. Yes and to accept the things that I cannot. 
which is not an original thought, but it is something that I've learned from our religion. That's our that's tenet of our religion, that you're obliged to do that. And uh, I I go with that. Yes. And everybody else has to make up their own mind as to what they believe. And I envy those people who are so dedicated to the religion that that they can explain everything in terms of godliness, of in terms of predestination or omnipotence of God. What what is Yom Kippur like for you? Oh, it's very very traumatic because it's a yard site. That's the anniversary of my mother's and my sister's death. It's the also the death of about over 30 people who on Yom Kippur, on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement of 1942, from the town of Częstochow, were deported to Treblinka. Yes. And summarily murdered it on Yom Kippur Day of 1942. So it is a very emotional day. And I spend a lot of time thinking about them, reading their names in my mind, thinking about their lives that were uh, lost. And it's a very difficult time, yes. There were 20 members, right? 20, you were saying? Over 20 members. Were you? Did you know them all? Were you close with I them all? Know, I knew every single one of them. And Chancellor was near the village that you lived in? No, it was uh, about 100 kilometers away from where we lived. And you would spend time with them? Yes. Well, the the thing is that they came from Sosnivas, but they lived in my hometown. Okay. Like uh, five brothers and sisters lived in my hometown. There were seven of them in Canada, uh, yes. And two of them lived in Chastachov, and the rest lived in my hometown. So I knew... Everyone, I knew my cousins, some I knew aunts, aunts and uncles. Can you tell us about one of your cousins? Who was one of my cousins? Tell us about one of your cousins. One of my cousins? Well, the cousins that I would like to talk about is the ones that survived. Yes. Roma and Genya, Nadelberg. Her mother was uh, Mira uh, Nadelberg, Mira uh, Ney Leipziger. And... Uh, they were lived in the same store, same area. They were Roma was the best friend of my sister, uh, Linka, which was her name, Polish name, and um, they survived. They got married. They had children, and unfortunately, Roma's daughter, at the age of thirty-two, committed suicide, and left a five-year-old daughter who became uh, very much involved in our life because Roma, at the age of 12, sent her to Canada Mm -hmm. to be with us over the summer. So we spent with her practically every summer since she was 12. And uh, many, many summers and after that, she grew up and became a wonderful human being. She was uh, an issue of... uh, my cousin's daughter and an Algerian man, 
So she has uh, uh, two uh, parents that are of different religions. One is Muslim, one is Jewish. According to the Jewish religion, she is Jewish. According to the Muslim religion, she is Muslim. Right. And uh, she uh, chose, because of her grandmother being with her, she chose to follow the Jewish uh, roots to a certain extent. Uh, you know, she had a difficult youth and, and uh, teenage years and uh, difficult times getting, finding herself. But she found her at Sorbonne, the university, she found a wonderful human being who is German and yeah. Catholic. And uh, she was very much torn whether she should bury him. And uh, we talked about it. So we went to Germany to be with them and talk about the situation of what it's going to be. <laughs> and uh, she married. And they have two wonderful children. And he's a wonderful human being. <laughs> and they're accepted. Her family, her, his family accepted her as a Jew. And they did not she did not have to convert to marry him. So her, you know, it would normally be required that she convert, but her husband agreed not to convert, uh, asked not to, not to ask her to convert. And uh, so they're a mixed marriage. And they're going to be here in about two months to spend with us about two weeks or two and a half weeks together with the family, oh, her husband and her children and, so we continuing on to, you know, so there is a situation where life is not a straight line. And that's what I'm saying, that life is not a straight line. It has many curves and many ups and downs. And you have to be lucky to be able to live a nice and peaceful and straight life that I was very lucky to be able to have by the fact that my father's brother came to Canada in, 19, in 1912 and was able to bring us to Canada and that I was fortunate enough to be able to go to high school and university and I'm very much humbled because in a month or three weeks the University of Toronto has agreed to bestow the title of uh, Doctor of Law right. on me and, and convocation, sir. Congratulations. Thank you. How are you feeling about that? Oh, I feel very much honored. What a big deal. And humbled. And um, I feel that uh, it is a, a great, I don't, I don't think that I actually deserve it, uh, but I am grateful that I was offered this. Yes, and I was happy to receive it, to accept it. We'll call you Doctor Nate Leipziger. <laughs> I like that very much. I understand that they don't normally bestow a doctorate on someone who already has a degree from the university. Is that correct? Yes. So this is a bit of an anomaly, actually. Well, I don't know about that. I, I have no knowledge of that. I, I, have no, I can't tell. Comment okay. on that. Okay. 
I want I want to take a step back a little bit. You had a challenging time with your father uh, when you were little, but the truth be told is you were in uh, seven different camps, death camps. You were in a ghetto, um, and your father saved your life many many times, right? Yes. Can you tell us a few a few of those instances? Well, the first incident was that when we got to Auschwitz, the first time. I worked. I was since the age of twelve. I went to an electrical. Uh, so that saying that my my mother made me two years older. Right, right, right. <laughs> and my birthday was nineteen twenty six instead of twenty eight. And I was able to be enrolled in an electrician's course which required you to be 14 years old according to the German laws. And she enrolled me at the age of 12 and I graduated with good marks from the electrical uh, apprentice course. And then I worked for all the year from 1940 to 1943 in a shoe factory. Oh. And uh, when we got to Auschwitz, uh, you see, all the deportations that happened beforehand, and there were many from our hometown, we understood that whether we believed it or not, we had no choice but to sort of believe it, even so we doubted it. Mm-hmm. But we were told that the people who are being deported are going to be deported to a place where they will have better lodging, better food, jobs, etc., and be able to live out their lives. Also, we were skeptic because the fact that they were taking children and old women and old men from us. So we couldn't sort of figure that out. But as a 15-year-old child or a teenager, I didn't spend very much time thinking about it. And when I got, when we were deported and we were on the train and we were got off the train, and we were in Birkenau and were selected in two columns, one man and one woman. I stood with my mother because I, I wanted to be with her. We wanted to be as a family together. I felt that it would be, as long as if we were deported, it would be advantageous to be together as a family. As long as you were as a family, you had a certain amount of security. Yes. And then they separated us. My father came over. He grabbed me by my sleeve and took me over and he we're in the first row of men, and then this assessment was conducting uh, our, you know, he was determining our lives by a flick of a wrist, left or right, and my father went to his left, and I went to my right, and I was standing with my uncles, other younger boys, and I saw my mother and my sister were among the young people, and my father was with the young people, so I was absolutely convinced that they were safe mm-hmm. and that I would be here in the area of deportation where they said they're going to resettle us. And I had no problem with that because I was 15 years old. I had a trade. I could make shoes and I could uh, run wires and I could make joints. And I was self-sufficient. I, could not, I could, did not worry about myself. When my father suddenly called me and I heard his voice in my thoughts, I was so deep in my thought that I didn't hear him at first. And uh, finally I came up and reacted. And, and he says, this is my son. He's 17 years old. 
Yes. And that's when, uh, you know, so, and he said he's an electrician, which was true. Of course, I was only 15. And he's told me, he, you know, he's a good worker. And, and the Nazi talked to me for a few seconds, asking me some questions. And I responded in, in, in proper German. I spoke German as my, my actually my first language. And uh, it was surprised because here we are, we are in Poland, and I spoke perfect German. And uh, But anyway, he, he said, okay, take him and be quick about it. And my father grabbed me, and he put me in between two men on either side, and I marched off, not knowing what happened to my father. And my father joined me in the, in the barrack where we were disrobed, we were uh, tattooed, we were shaved, the loused and given a lecture. Given the lecture that you are, you're better behaved because if you don't, you're going to join your brothers and sisters and parents that are being now processed, meaning that they were gassed to death. And uh, your life expectancy is four months. Either you get out to a job to a, to a, a workplace or you go out through the chimney yes and so that was a most difficult thing to live with you didn't get that in the beginning you didn't understand what he was saying right oh i understood i, I looked at my father and i wanted to whether he whether he was telling you the truth and my father sort of nodded his head and he says, you better believe it. Can you see all these images in your head right now? Oh, absolutely. You remember everything in your head, right? You I were only saying... have images. I don't remember anything. I only have images. Like that Nazi. The only thing that I remember yeah. is images, right. not words. Right. Therefore, my story is never told the same way, but the image never changes. So you can see that Nazi's face? I can see his face. I can see... I don't know that I remember his face or his features because they all looked the same to me. Yeah. But I know what he did knowingly. He did that knowingly. Okay. He knew that he was saving my life. Yes. Because he knew that the line that I was in was going to go into the gas chamber and be gassed within an hour. So he knew what was happening. And the question that I still have is why did he do it? Why did he do it? Why did he respond to my father's plea to save me what answers have you come up with none none i mean the fact that maybe he was human after all huh? that's 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 my poor my that's my i'm convinced of that that there were human beings they were doing terrible things yes and that what makes Human beings, it's very dangerous because we don't know when and who. You know, whether it's in Europe or whether it's in Middle East, you don't know who's going to turn the gun on you or who is going to decapitate you. You don't know. I believe that those people who do both things are of the same milk. And do you trust people, therefore? Oh, absolutely. 
even though you don't know which way they could possibly go. That doesn't mean that I trust them absolutely. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I don't trust them. I said absolutely, but I don't. No, I trust them. And I believe that you must not expose yourself. Yes. So that, you know, you don't do stupid things. You don't go into an area where there is a known danger. And uh, you have to be careful in what you're doing. But I believe in humanity. I believe that man is basically good and that um, there are influences which make us bad that appeal to our, the worst instinct in our man and man. I mean, man has been killing men ever since Adam and Eve, since Abel, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, yeah. Right? We know about that. Yes, we do. And we know that the prehistoric men were uh, killing each other in tribe war, tribal wars. So killing of uh, man killing man is not something new. The only thing we have to, we thought, that in the 20th century, we have attained a certain amount of understanding of that difficulties and that we can behave in a different way. And so it's in the 21st century, it still puzzles me that men can be so cruel to men as we see when when somebody puts on an explosive uh, vest and blows up other human beings with himself. I don't understand that. And that's why maybe I don't believe that God is omnipotent. So I was going to ask you, how is it that somebody wakes up in the morning and decides that today they're going to hurt somebody or a group of people? You've you've seen lots and lots of cruelty. I've I understand goodness. I understand why a person would say tomorrow morning, I'm going to do something good for the world. But how does someone wake up and decide that they're going to hurt people? I don't get that. That I don't get. You don't get that? I don't get that. Sure. I don't. I don't get it. Do you think many people do? I, I mean, the, the Nazis did. They came know, to the camp that, every day. That's right. But they're not normal human beings. Any more than those who put on a vest and uh, decide that they're going to blow themselves up with, to kill a few other people. Okay. I don't understand it. I think it's beyond human understanding. Yeah. All I know is that people can be convinced that that's what they should do. And what do we call that? We call that as a term that we use, that being that they're being terrorized, that they're being... Um, Indoctrinated? Indoctrinated. Actually, worse than indoctrination, that they're being... Uh, uh, they're, brainwashed. They're, brainwashed is an old term, but um, I think they're being... Uh, I'm sorry, I can't it's think okay. of the word that is used when somebody is being turned into a terrorist. Right, right, I know what you're thinking. Radicalized. R- radicalized. radicalized. Yeah, so my brain still works. Radicalized. And and Nate, what about the level of goodness and kindness you saw in the camps? How high did that go? Well, that that that's what's what you talk about, not losing faith in humanity. 
it would be totally understandable when you survive the camp and you come out and you become a misanthrope. A misanthrope is somebody that hates humanity. Yeah, he hates people, yeah. And uh, it would be understandable, but that did not happen. Man did not give up hope. What did the survivors do when they first came out of the camp? The first thing that they did. You know what they did? You were saying they built synagogues. They built synagogues. Right. And they prayed to God, and they say Kaddish, the prayers for, for the dead. Yeah, they would say for their, for their parents' name. And they married, and they had children. Yeah, yeah. How can you be pessimistic and do that and have that faith to bring children into this world right after you saw the destruction of millions and millions of people? Can you that think, was the greatest miracle. Can you think of examples of kindness that you saw in the camps? You know, yes. For example, my father and I we were on different shifts. And I would throw a piece of bread to him. And he missed it. And another prisoner picked it up and gave it to him. Yeah. He was starving. And he gave the piece of bread that belonged to my father. That's a kindness. Being nice to you was kindness. Being civil to you was kindness. Standing in line and not hustling you was kindness. Not pushing me out of line because I was little, so small. That was kindness. Right? Yes. Kindness was all around us. I mean, uh, I, I believe that kindness is around everywhere and that uh, I don't know that I take it for granted. I think that you have a choice of being kind or not being kind. Because kindness is, is an act, it's an act, it's an act, it's a conscious act. It's a conscious act to say to somebody, good morning. It's a conscious act to say, you know, thank you. Yes, it is. And we don't have to do that, but we do. And that what distinguishes us from others. You were you were starving in the camp, right? Yes. I understood that people who are starving, and this is from an Ellie Wiesel story, would lose their sanity. A father beating up a son. Well, that was at the so very I'm, end. So I'm curious how that works. That's at the very, when you become a Muslim. A Muslim was a term, which is Muslim meaning a Muslim, in the jargon, in the camp jargon, and that was uh, more likely uh, referred to uh, uh, the images of Gandhi rather than Muslims. But um, at any rate, when you became totally uh, without any muscles, when you lost all your muscles, yeah. because your body, when it starves, it eats your muscles. Correct. So your muscles deteriorate to the extent that you become a skeleton. 
and you, when you become a skeleton, you lose your your uh, uh, your balance, and you your eyes become glossy, and you uh, become incoherent, and uh, that's that's the last the last vestiges of of uh, extreme hunger of ex- of of starvation, and um, there were many element there were many steps before that where you become incoherent and uh, you know you become uh, other image that I bring into is Kafkaesque uh, you know where you see images that are not there and um, yes so that's what happened with Ellie I was very much surprised at the relationship that Ellie had with his father mm-hmm I could not have that with my father. You want to describe that? Well, his his he looked at his father as a burden. Somebody he had to look after. Even so I helped my father at times, I'd never considered him a burden. Right. And uh, I felt that we were one unit, we were together. Our survival was tied to each other. I couldn't imagine abandoning my father under any circumstances. And uh, neither did he. There were times when he was asked to abandon me, and he he said no at the risk of his own life. He came back and stayed with me in Auschwitz-Birkenau after he was offered a t- tailor position in the Canada camp. Canada camp was the... Uh, camp part of the camp that was handling all the uh, belongings that came with the people from outside mm-hmm. from the freedom yes and uh, they were the ones that had an easier way and a greater chance of survival he was offered a position there and he refused he said he's going to be with me as long as he can yes When your father passed away, how long ago was that? 1972. What was your morning like? Well, it was, uh, it was, my world changed. Yeah. Then, as it did with my loss of my daughter, it changed and um, it was unexpected. I stopped being a child. Even so, I was uh, then seventy. I was thirty-four years old. Right. Up to that point, I was considered, and I let my father be the person that talked about the Shoah. I mean, we didn't talk about it for twenty-five years, thirty years. But when we did start talking, it was him who was speaking. And a lot of my memories are his memories that I remembered. Things that I could not have known unless he told me. And uh, yeah, that that was a fantastic change in my life. But uh, I knew I had a young family. And my priority was to live for them. 
I could not be, I could not mourn to the extent that I was being incapacitated. So I did my mourning and uh, I got over it and I went on with my life, with my children's life and my future. I had to make a living, I had to bring up children, educate them, move forward. So uh, it's different when you lose a parent than when you lose a child. Some second generation survivors have told me that their parents wouldn't allow them to feel. They would say, what are you complaining about? Look what I went through. What, what, what sort of parent were you as a survivor? From my point of view, I mean, uh, I thought I was a, as good a parent as I could be. I don't know that I was the best parent. I'm sure I had many faults and many things that I did wrong. I did not want to traumatize my children by my past. Yeah. But invariably things came out. My biggest success in that regard was that my wife did not have my own background. She was born in Canada. And therefore we did not have common language in front of the children. Mm-hmm. We could not speak about camp life or occurrences or family occurrences because we were coming from two different parts of the world. So that helped my children and my father having survived and having remarried. Now they had two grandparents, two pair set of grandparents. Yes. So their life was quite normal compared to those children who did not have any grandparents and who whose lives were very difficult, very difficult, because they had to work from the day that their that their feet hit the ground. They had to uh, run with uh, life, trying to get a job and and making money, making building a house, you know, creating a new family. It was and not very much help from outside, and uh, they had a completely different life. That's why I had lost all my relationship to my fellow survivors because they had to go to work i had the luxury of going to school right i had i couldn't be with them when they went walking on college street or spadina when they were went to the pool house i had to go home and study my vocabulary and prepare my lesson for the next day right right and uh, that saved me in a way and uh I think it saved my sanity to a great extent. And I had an opportunity, a golden opportunity, which not many people had. My father married Toby Waxman, Alan Ben Waxman's mother. Yes. So now we became a nuclear family of three boys, two parents. I mean, they had lost their father, I lost my mother. And we were... A normal family suddenly okay not something that was afforded to any of the many to many of the survivors that came with me or before or after so my life was uh, relatively uh, good compared to the lives of survivors how long did it take Bernice your wife to understand your language to understand your inner workings 
and vice versa. I mean, you came out of a, what we would call a big T trauma. Well, she she uh, she talked about that. Yes, she talked about that. She, of course, did not believe my story. She thought I was exaggerating. Also, did she? Did she? Also, I did not tell her the full extent of my stories. I never told her that I was sexually abused. Till, uh, my grand, my oldest grandchild was about sixteen before I revealed that I was sexually abused. To, to your grandchild? Her. And to her. Right. You know, so uh, I carry that in my in my background. But she learned, um, uh, we studied together. We studied different religions. We studied books about religions, huh. about every single religion that I could find. I was looking for, I was looking for reason why it happened. I was looking for why do believe people believe in God? Is God there? And I studied all different uh, from I say from Zoroastrianism to uh, to Baha'i, right. and um, try to find what it is that makes men believe in God. And the last thing I studied was Judaism. Right. Right. And, uh, <laughs> he says with a smile on his face. Yes. <laughs> and that was uh, quite a revelation. Well, and revelation I how? Still, how? I still study. I still study Judaism. Well, how was a revelation? Well, the fact that uh, we don't have to go through loops in order to uh, make our beliefs believable. Right. Uh, I think that the... The Bible story is a very beautiful story, and uh, it is a human story. It talks about man more than it talks about divinity. Correct. It talks about man being our leaders, our uh, our matriarchs and patriarchs being human beings, making mistakes with foibles. Right, making making mistakes, being human. Yeah. So it, uh, of course, there are miracles, but you can believe or not believe the miracle. It doesn't change the fact of what we believe as our root, our our the fact that we have a Bible, a Torah, which regulates our life. It tells us what we, our life should be. That we should love our stranger as our homeborn. As our brother, as our own, as our own, because we were strangers in Egypt. Yes. Now that is a very difficult concept for even today men to assume, and they figured it out three thousand years ago. Right. So I was, I was very much uh, pleased to discover that something that I didn't know as a child, as because I never studied. Uh, Torah. Not that I studied later on, but I studied about Torah. And um, I read the Bible and I'm astonished with the things that are, I mean, I'm also abhorred with some events, but I'm astonished with things that of humanity, how it developed in the Bible. So I'm quite happy to be Jewish and 
I feel that there is definite advantage of being Jewish, and that's why I advocate that my children should uh, remain Jews, that they should marry Jews, that my grandchildren should marry Jews. What's the advantage? The advantage that we have a tradition that is 3,000 years old, and that uh, as, a, as, a, as a family, we are very close connected. We can depend on each other. When we go through trauma, we know we're there for each other. And that's why Israel is so important to me, because I remember when there was no Israel. Yes. I remember when Jews were the, uh, the wandering Jew, the Evige Yehuda, the, the, the ever-wandering Jew who had no country, that every country that they wanted would throw, would throw us out, and every country did throw us out. Sometimes twice, sometimes three sometimes, times. Many times, yes. And uh, there was not a single country in the world except the Western world that uh, didn't throw us out, and in the Western world they didn't let us in. Yeah. So they couldn't throw us out. <laughs> right. But uh, so Israel is very, very important because that's the only state that Jews have, the only state that can intervene for us. When I live in Canada, I'm a Canadian. I'm a very proud Canadian, but I'm also a proud Jew. But I know that if Canadian laws, for some stupid reason, some unforeseen reason, decided that my citizenship would be revoked, I know that there is an ambassador in Ottawa that will stand up for me, for my rights, and that I have where to go. <laughs> which we did not have before 48. So people do not understand. I mean, I spoke to people in England, and they said, why do you want to have Israel? You have, you have all the countries of the world. You, you can have America and Canada, United States, and, you know, and Britain, and uh, you can do anything you want. You have wonderful life. Why do you need Israel? And I remind them what the world was like before 1948, before Israel was existing. But they still don't get it. They still don't get it. But we as Jews, we must get it. That if Israel were to disappear or to fall or to, be, or to not, be, not be a Jewish state, we would be a lost race. Or not a race, but a people. Because we are all the same race, but different people. Nate, why are we hated so much? I think Nietzsche said it all. He said that the Bible emasculated the strong man. Mm -hmm. Right? The world knows strong man. And here comes a little Jewish guy from the desert who says God is stronger than Pharaoh, he's stronger than God. And then comes, um, you know, Jesus, who says, the meek will inherit the world. So the weak man will inherit, will, sur sur will surpass the strong man. Mm -hmm. So it emasculated man. And I think that's why the uh, Hitler believed that, and Nietzsche believed that, Wagner believed that. 
and we're trying to retain the belief of an invisible God, an omnipotent God, and uh, without images. And um, people in the first century decided to change our religion. And we resisted. And by resisted, we became their enemies. Because their truth could not be fully true if we were still around. Without our acceptance. If God abandoned us. Yeah. And if we don't accept Jesus, therefore we are out of grace, and therefore we're not like them, and therefore we are, you know, the, the I don't know the, the, the scriptures, the Christian Christians, but I know that we were persecuted for the fact that we would not be like them. We would not believe what they believed. And then Muhammad came along. He thought that he could convert Judaism to his way of thinking. And when we didn't, he turned against us. Right. And when uh, Luther came along, uh, he thought that we would become Lutherans. And when we did not, he turned against us too. So our being insistent on remaining who we are was our sin as in the eyes of the world. And for that, we were punished and suffering, and we had suffered for many centuries. And we still do. It's not over. As you know, the whole world is against Israel. Yes. And if Israel were to be taken off the map, our life would be also threatened and most likely have to disappear as a as a people as a nation as a religion you've been on march of the living which is a program which is worldwide taking young people to poland to see the concentration camps you've been there 19 times and you're very much committed to this program your interaction with both young Jewish kids as well as the Poles themselves um, has been going on for, as I said, two decades. Do you, are you okay with the Poles? I'm okay with people. Whether they're Polish or French or Dutch, it doesn't matter who they are. It's what they do and what they believe. And I don't, judge them for what they did. I don't hate the Spaniards for the Spanish Inquisition. Yes. I don't uh, hate the German today for what their forefathers did to us. And I don't hate all of Poland, all of Poles, because some of them did terrible things by exposing the Jews and their neighbor and causing their death any more than I do with the French gendarmes who rounded up the Jews and delivered them to the Jews, or the Dutch for that matter, who rounded up the Jews and delivered them to the Nazis. And so I'm, I believe in humanity, 
I believe that we have to stop hating each other. And the way to do that is to start with yourself. I cannot start asking somebody to stop hating unless I stop hating myself. I cannot hate anyone. And that's my, that's, I feel that's feel very strongly because hate destroys not only the person that you hate, but you, it doesn't have any influence on the person that you hate. If I hate the German, all the Germans has no influence whatsoever on them. They don't know about it. Yeah. But I feel it because I feel the hatred in myself and I wake up in the morning being hateful and eventually it hates turns inter- internally and it destroys the person that's doing the hating. Are the, are the Poles trying to deny their involvement in the Holocaust? Everybody denies their involvement in the Holocaust. Have you heard the Dutch apologize to the Jews or the French? I mean, the, the, the Prime Minister of France did apologize uh, to the Jews in the year 2000 in Norway when uh, there was the first uh, uh, convention in the year 2000, which was the uh, convention of uh, Holocaust survivors, yeah. uh, Holocaust education, and uh, uh, I don't remember the exact title of it, but it was in, in Oslo that uh, the French prime minister came and said, I apologize for the atrocities that French did. And the, and the, and the, uh, but the Polish president, President Bowenza, went to the Knesset and he apologized for the things that the Polish people did individually, did to the Jews. Now, our people, our survivors, I'm quite sure that it is justified for them to hate some of the Poles that they encountered. They were hidden. And the only person that was their enemy were at that point not the Nazis, but the neighbor of the person that was hiding them. Because if the neighbor knew that they that they were being hidden, and if he said something against his neighbor, or if he was totally against the Jews and he could benefit from pointing out that there was a Jew hidden, he did that. Yes. Now you asked me the other day if I knew who would be a righteous among the nation. Yes. I said I couldn't tell you. And neither could I tell you who would be a person that would denounce his neighbor and the Jewish people that were hidden. So from that point of view, I can, I do not uh, feel that, uh, you know, that, that any person, that any government or, I mean, the Poles have a specific agenda. Their specific agenda is, is to eradicate the same Polish concentration camp and Polish death camp which people who are very inaccurate in the way they use language are very quick to say, like they, they never talk about the gas chamber, they always talk about the crematoria, mm-hmm. which is a euphemism for a gas chamber. They also talk about Polish death camp, just because they were in occupied, Nazi-occupied Poland, and they refer to them as... So the, the Poles were getting a black eye because of that as a nation. They were getting a black eye more than the Nazis were, than the Germans were. Because in, in Germany, you could say, well, the Nazis did it. 
You couldn't say that in the Poland, but you have to say that the Nazis did. So the Polish government says we were not in existence. There were the, the Polish nation never as a nation denounced the Jews. The Polish government as a nation never denounced the Jews to, uh, to be exterminated or to be murdered. The individuals may have, but there were individuals all over the world that did that. I don't know of any country that would not, I mean, that was, uh, more, uh, altruistic than, than the, than the Poles were. And you know, the only country, there was only two countries in the whole world that I think that were kind and saved Jews. The first one was Italy and the second one was Denmark. But right. all other countries, including Sweden and Norway and everywhere in the world, They were against us. So we're going to wrap up in a few minutes. I just want to ask you a couple of questions, which I think are really important. You were a 12, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old kid in the camps and death camps in ghettos. You were emaciated. One can't possibly imagine what that was like. And then a couple of years ago... You're in Auschwitz with Prime Minister Trudeau. <laughs> like the disparity between those two is like from here to Saturn. The distance is great. How did you feel when you walked through the camp with Prime Minister Trudeau? I felt very, very, very proud. You must have. And... Um not only was I there by myself, but I had my wife with me and my daughter and yeah. my granddaughter. Yeah. So there we, we were, three generations after Hitler denied us, our lives, and our future. We were there, three generations, with the prime minister, the highest office in our country. We were there saying Kaddish, the prayer for the dead, for the, in honor of the dead, with the prime minister, and he was crying yes. with me. So I felt very moved. I cried with him, and I gave him the Kohanic blessing, like I gave your son. As you gave my son. I can't tell you how much that touched me a few weeks ago at his bar mitzvah. I felt so incredibly honored. Thank you for doing that. I believe in that energy. I really do. I thank you. I love you. <laughs> I love you. You know what you said, by the way, after you had gone to Auschwitz with the prime minister, you said the prime minister cried as well. You said that was the greatest expression of understanding that he could have done to me or for me. Well, what did you mean by that? I think he wrote it in his, his a paragraph that he done dedicated in right right in, uh, in Auschwitz, that he understood how terrible humanity he can be. That he he was confronted with the greatest evil on earth at that time, and that uh, he knows what he has to do in order to prevent it from occurring. Yeah, he said something very interesting. He said, tolerance is never sufficient. Humanity must learn to love our differences. We shall never forget. 
I continued on that. And I say that tolerance is never sufficient. Because if we tolerate our human being, it has conditions. I'm saying to you, I will tolerate you for the time being. Till you change and you become like me. And that is negative. That is a negative idea. Yes. And it never works because that, that immediately puts you on a lower level than I am. Because I'm saying I'm tolerating you. Mm-hmm. So what is, what is required? And from that, I deducted that the only thing that is acceptable is mutual acceptance. So not unconditional acceptance, mutual acceptance. Why do I say mutual? Because it has preconditions. What are the preconditions? That if you come into my country, you respect my, our country's laws, mm-hmm. and that you accept us the way we are, the way we accept you. We will accept you the way you are, with your religion, with your custom, with your dress mode, no matter how what you want to dress, no matter what you want to do, as long as you accept our dress code and our way of life. And then we can live together like we do in Canada, and we're proud of it, and we are hope that the rest of the world will learn something from our experiment of mutual understanding and mutual acceptance. And that's why I'm talking about the indigenous mm-hmm. people, because we have to accept the indigenous. We have to stop saying that they're inferior, that their culture is inferior, that their religion is inferior. It's, it's, we tolerate them. We'll tolerate them. We'll take your children. We'll make them like us. We'll, you know, deprive you of your parents of your child so that the child is hating the parent. We are terrible. We've done terrible things to them. And we as a nation are responsible for what our forefathers did. And we can't escape it. We have to help them to come back, to regain their pride, to believe, to regain their belief in their religions and their customs, the way of their language. We have to restore the language so that they can be proud instead of our, their teenagers committing suicide because there's no hope out of the reservation and no way they can make a way in this world. We are owing, we owe it to them. We are responsible to rectify it. So, so final. That's, that all comes from the one sentence that Trudeau say tolerance is never enough. Correct, correct. So, f- final question anti Semitism is proliferating in the world. It's up dramatically here in Canada and outside of Canada. We have spent billions of dollars on Holocaust education through films through theater, through books, through lectures, through the building of Holocaust monuments. We said many years ago, never again. She'll forgive, but never forget. My question to you definitively, have we learned the right thing from Holocaust education to step up when there is a requirement to do so for each and every Jew, men, women, and children to be involved in the fight, in the battle, in bringing us together with other people so they should know us and we should know them. Are you satisfied that we've learned enough and we're doing enough to fight anti-Semitism, the Jewish people? There's about a half a dozen no's to what your questions have been asked. No, there's not enough. No, the Holocaust education is not the end-all and 
and uh, to be all of our, every of education. Education in itself has to have a number of elements, as I have said. An education with it has to carry with it compassion, understanding, justice, has to res respect the other the other person, and has to have humaneness to accept the other person as they are. And but there's never enough Holocaust education. Holocaust education is correct. Is it is it gone far enough? No. Have we done enough? No. Is there more to be done? Absolutely. Will I ever defeat anti-Semitism? Only if anti-Semitism def defeats itself. Only if people are educated and know that anti-Semitism is based on misinformation, is based on hatred, it's based of uh, generalization, and generally on w bad will of human beings towards other human beings. Right. So we are not fighting only anti-Semitism. We're fighting all of those elements that are involved in anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism, whether it is against one group or whether it is against the, the people in Sri Lanka or against the people in uh, uh, Christchurch or in California or in uh, Kentucky, all of those expressions of hatred are against individual groups. And all of us, all of those groups will suffer and not be safe Till we all are safe. Yes. So this is not only our fight. Anti-Semitism is not a fight by Jews against the world. It is the world's fight against itself, against its own misinformation, mis against its own intolerance. So it's we joining with all other people of good, good, good other people of goodwill, holding hands like we do in rallies, where rallies are not are you know are much better than as you said in silence they're much better than silence because silence only helps those who are persecuting us and who are wishing us ill so yes that our fight is not over this struggle is strong is, is difficult but will we prevail absolutely because if we don't prevail if we say there is no hope then we all have to commit suicide. And I don't think we should. I think there is hope, and I think that there's enough goodwill in around the world, and there's many more people who are well disposed towards us or towards each other than there are people that hate us. And I don't have to worry about the people who hate us. They have to worry because they're our diminishing race. They're the diminishing group of people who, as like we saw, ISIS, who who advocated hate left, right, and center. Where are they? They're being diminished. And that's the fight, not only of Jewish people, but the world. The world has to fight hatred and misunderstanding, generalization, and intolerance. You should live till 120. Thank you. What what would you like written on your tombstone? He was a good father, a loving husband, and a great good, good great grandfather to and great grandfather to these children. 
grandchildren, great grandchildren. That's nice. Maybe we'll add he does a good interview too. <laughs> Listen, Nate, thank you so much for doing this. I absolutely adore doing this with you. I thank you so much. I uh, I always find it an honor and a pleasure. I've interviewed you a couple of times, and uh, it, it's different than most of my interviews. I must. I'm tell. sure you'll have a lot of naysayers that still come and say Nate is all hot air. He's wrong because the world is not as rosy as what he pretends to uh, that it is. Maybe. And but uh, I'm an optimist, and to me, I'd rather be. Uh, thinking about a glass full uh, rather than half empty. Uh, listen, the world needs people like you. There's no question about it. And I'm inspired by you greatly. I, I, I always tell people at the end of the show, the reason why Hat Radio exists is to bring positivity to the world because there's enough nonsense out there. There's about enough crap that people can read or listen to of a negative nature. I think there's a lot of that in the world. And I want us to bring positivity. And I think you did a beautiful job here today. And I think you've done that 19 years through March of the Living and on and on and on and on. So I thank you. On behalf of the Jewish people, I thank you. On behalf of the world, I thank you. And I, uh, I'm so grateful for what you've done here today. You're welcome. Yeah. So thank you, too, to our listeners. We got some great shows coming up in the future. I'm going to be interviewing the mayor of Oshawa next week. He was homeless for a number of years. He got off the street pulled up his socks, as they say, and today he's a very, very successful man and extremely intelligent. So thank you for listening. You've been there's listening for hope. Yeah, there's tons of hope. <laughs> You've been listening to Hat Radio. It's the show that schmoozes. God bless. God bless. Avram Rosenzweig began public speaking when he was five years old. Over the last five decades, Avram has mastered the art of public speaking. Today, Avram is a professional speech writer and speech coach. He offers a wide selection of services that can assist you in preparing for public speaking events, speeches for family or professional occasions, a keynote, a memorial, or a simple toast. Avram can also coach you through articulation and presentation challenges. For all your speech writing needs, send Avram an email at info at hatradio.ca that's info at hatradio.ca you've been listening to hat radio with avram rosenzweig sponsored by goodness and positivity hat radio the show that schmoozes step inside my living room share a little talk by roads walked and lessons learned keeping the flame of faith burning I want to know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the high